All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast. I'm here today with Rob Willis, all the way from Germany. Rob is a public speaking coach and trainer who I found on LinkedIn, like I find most of the people on this podcast from LinkedIn. Uh, he made a piece of content, and I think he used the hashtag. I found him, and then I started uh, following him and asked him if he wants to be on the show. So Rob is going to share his insights on public speaking, coaching, training, and give us sort of his background on how he got into the industry, and we're going to get in a bunch of cool stuff today. So Rob, uh, if you could, just for a brief moment, tell the audience where you're from, what you're doing, and how you got to where you are uh, in the speaking industry at this point. My name's Rob Willis. I'm actually not from Germany. I'm from England, from the east of England, from a place called Norfolk. I've, I've lived in Germany for about 10 years now. And when I first came here, I actually wasn't working in public speaking at all. I was working in music. I was a music producer at that time. Wow. Yeah, and <laughs> it was very, very, very different. And because I didn't make much money on the music, I also worked simultaneously as a tour guide in Berlin. Right. And that was my first, I guess, dipping my toe into the water of speaking publicly. And through both the music and tour guiding, I discovered all the difficulties that people often have when they're speaking, trying to engage people, trying to make people give you money, buy things, all the kind of things that you might have to do when you're, when you're speaking. So then, because I wanted to get better at those things and do better as uh, for my job, earn more money and so on, I started working out what does a good public speaker do? Read all sorts of books and so on, and joined Toastmasters. Do you know the organization Toastmasters? Yeah, yep. And then through that world, began to learn more about public speaking, presentations, storytelling, and so on. And then what was cool was I started being able to use my knowledge of music and also tour guiding and putting that back into what I'd learned. Right. Because I did have inspiration from that as well. Right. And then now I, here I am coaching public speaking and uh, and presentation skills. So uh, what age were you when you started doing music producing? Oh God, I was 17 or something like that. Very young. And this was still in England, correct? No, it was in England. That was in and England, okay. I only came to Germany because I was at university and did an exchange here. Right, right. And fell in love with Berlin, which is a wonderful city, you've got to come. And decided to make my home in 2010. If you told me that I would be sitting in Berlin in 2019, I wouldn't have believed you. You wouldn't have believed you. One thing goes to another, leads to another, and, and I'm still here now. Interesting. So, and how old are you right now? 33. So at 17, you were on this music producing path. It wasn't giving you enough financial stability. You started doing, mm -hmm. you came to Germany for a foreign exchange program in college, and then you started doing tour guides. And mm -hmm. in the process of doing tour guides, you realized how not only difficult, but how rewarding the ability is to, to, to speak and influence and get your message across. And that's what got you in this niche. Did you realize at the moment when you were publicly speaking, when you were a tour guide, that this was a skill that was going to be something that you would be coaching other people in the next 10 years? Uh, definitely not. Actually, everything I had to learn at the beginning was picked up through trial and error. Right. So I was actually working in this weird structure of work where I'd be giving tours. And for every person in my group, I'd have a 
let's say a group of 20 to 30 people, I would have to pay a company a small fee right. to give the tour. And the tour was actually done for free, but people would then give me tips afterwards. Ah, interesting. So I get to keep the difference between what I've got and what I've just to the other guys. Right. So at the beginning, if you don't know what you're doing and you feel a bit unsure, you also don't know the history that well, you're not going to make very much money. So I had to work out a way that I'd be able to make people want to give me more as quickly as possible. Right, right. And you learn, pick this up gradually, bit by bit, without really knowing that you're learning anything. And then later on, when I actually started learning about pitching, sales, and so on, I worked out, oh, that's why that works. Right. Or that's why that doesn't work. And then, sense. of course, learned a whole new load of new stuff which they could then apply and then make it even better gotcha that's very interesting it's, it's a it's a much different path than um a lot of people who get into speaking right a lot of people they have this idea they want to share and they want to get formally trained and coached on it for you it was like it was literally life or death food on the table required me to figure out how i get people to want to give me more money in this business yeah. model and that required influence in speaking um so now you're currently 33 and you're doing speaking and coaching. When did you decide to go full-time training, coaching, and I guess start your own business in, in this realm? That's really this year. This year. This, uh, the past few months I've been doing that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Um, all right. So let's get into a couple of technical elements of speaking for, mm -hmm. for some of the audience who uh, is listening. So obviously you've had a a multi-decade year relationship with speaking and influence and persuasion. I guess we'll start off with a, with an easy one to get some people to, to understand a little bit about yeah. where you're coming from. How do people, in a nutshell, get over the fear of public speaking? I think that is probably the reason most people come to try to learn more about public speaking is that they feel afraid when they're on stage and so on. Right. And for me, the biggest understanding that one has to have is that it's not actually about you you might feel scared because you're thinking oh everyone's looking at me right what if i mess up but really their focus is completely wrong their focus needs to be on the message that they're giving to others and whether the audience are enjoying themselves as well that mindset shift from Egocentric to audience-centric, I think, is a huge step for a lot of people. Also, being able to understand that that feeling of adrenaline, dry mouth, um, dry mouth sweaty palms, and so on, you're never going to get rid of that. Yeah. yeah, It's an excess of energy, and every time you get on stage, you're going to feel that little rush, and if you didn't get it, maybe it wouldn't be so fun speaking. It's about how you approach that particular feeling. I heard one actor, I don't even remember who it was, but he said he uses it as like a wind in his sail, something that he can use to push him forward when he's performing. And I think that's another way you can look at it. Try and realize that this feeling that you're having is exactly the same feeling as you would have if you were on a roller coaster, if you were having your first kiss, like, Good things, right. exactly the same feeling, but we're interpreting it in a different way. Right. So, I mean, it seems like to you, and this is what I've, I've learned from talking to a lot of uh, people in the industry, is that uh, the fear of public speaking is fundamentally mindset orientation philosophical. 
it is less to do with like the breathing techniques or like taking propanol 60 minutes before your performance yeah. it's much more has to do it much more has to deal with how you orient yourself towards the stage and i think a lot of people are always confused about that they think there's like a a formula to just get over the fear whereas the formula is is a deep introspective journey of going mm -hmm. within the depths of your mind and trying to figure out why you're afraid and then attacking those sort of fears not by getting rid of them because the nervousness is good to have but rather mm -hmm. reorienting how those fears are directed towards instead of yourself maybe the audience right i quite agree i think breathing exercises and so on are quite helpful right because sometimes you get yourself pumped up and you need to come down a little bit. So I don't know if you ever talked about box breathing, you know. No, and, like the, you, and if you want to talk about it right now, that'd be awesome. Is there any uh, technique that's, that's really good? There's a way to lower your heart rate and lower your anxiety. So what you do is you find some square object in the room. It could be a window, it could be a picture, it could be a wall. And you look at it and then you breathe, look at one corner. So let's say the top left. Right. You breathe in for a count of four. And then you go to the top right. You hold for a count of four. You look to the bottom right. Breathe out for a count of four. Bottom, uh, bottom left. Breathe um, and hold for a count of four. Right. You've got four corners. Breathing in, hold. Breathing out, hold. And because you're focusing your mind on these four corners and you're slowing your breathing deliberately anyway, that... I guess it gets more carbon dioxide out of your body, right. gets more into your body, that will calm you down. It's a technique that the Navy SEALs use before they go and do whatever Navy SEALs do. Interesting, interesting. And that's sort of like a right before you're heading on stage, right before you're about to do something, that's a quick thing you can do to try to just calm your breathing right before you get into the moment. Exactly, yeah. Right, right. Awesome. I, I don't do that because you know, you're waiting to go on and you're feeling a bit jittery but you need to just calm down a little bit take control of yourself right um in terms of some of the stuff you're doing right now with your coaching are you primarily helping uh clients uh of like corporations or are you helping clients that have presentations coming up what is the main sort of line of work that you're engaged in right now it's i would say about half and half at the moment okay the corporate clients and the workshops are easiest to expand so i think in the next few months probably i'll be doing a lot more workshops right because if you want to really help someone give a great speech you need to dedicate a bit more time to them and it's usually a slightly longer period of time but i'd say at the moment it's about half and half as it were so in terms of preparing clients who are giving a presentation giving a speech giving like a ted style uh talk that's coming up I guess what are your your best tips for for anyone who's listening to this podcast to be able to better construct an idea or a message? Because as I've been sort of in this industry and understanding the world of public speaking, I've realized it's a little bit less about the the, the techniques, even though those are fundamental and super important. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more about the macro level thesis of how to take an idea from your head and literally communicate that what like things in the process someone needs to go through to get an idea from a to b are there any key steps that you have that you coach clients for that um allow them to take this original concept this personal experience they have and turn it into yeah. a sellable speech yeah the thing about structure and this is something i learned from pop music is that there are structures that work 
Right. And I always encourage people to start with an established structure. And then if they want to change that afterwards, cool. But structure is usually a good way to go. And so what I tell people, if they want to do a persuasive speech, you need to start by thinking about what is your message? Right. What is a short sentence that completely sums up your point of view that matters to the audience? And we could go for ages about how we can create, uh, create a, a message, but you need to have a short message that's memorable, that's Instagrammable, that's a song chorus, that is something that people are going to be able to latch onto, and that at the end of your speech, if someone said to your audience, what was that about? They'll be able to repeat that back. Right. You need a message. You need a call to action. Because unless people do something, it's very likely that they're going to have forgotten what your speech was about quite soon. Particularly if you're at a TED talk or a conference of some sort, people are seeing five speeches in a day, maybe. But why is yours so special? If you're giving an action or something which gave them an instant win, they're going to latch onto that. And it brings them a step closer to what you want them to do, the change that you want to make. Right. Third, you need to have some sort of emotional hook, let's say. I usually would say this is a story something which shows why this matters and should matter to the audience, something which they can latch onto. And I think without the emotional hook, it's very, very difficult to get people involved in the argument you're trying to make. Right. And then lastly, you need some arguments, some logical arguments saying why what you're saying is right. And you should reduce that to, again, a, a maximum of three. People won't remember any more than that. Right. But each of those three arguments, you need to have one piece of evidence or a story or an example, something which is tangible. So you need to sum up a message, a call to action, an emotional hook, and a three logical arguments maximum. I have actually turned this into a speech builder, which you can, uh, can actually download. You just have to go to robdwillis.com slash speech builder and you get it on a sheet of A4. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I think definitely if, if you're listening to this and you, and you want to use that formula, um, definitely go into their website and download it. That seems like it's a it's a unique thing. Have, have you tested that in different places and you see that this is the most like common theme that exists among those speeches? Um, I've looked around what has worked best for me right. and what worked best for how I can explain things to people. Um, the problem is when you're looking through other speeches is, of course, it's, it can be hugely varied and not all speeches are fantastically structured. Uh, that is true. That is very true. <laughs> um, I mean, there are some, it, they can still be compelling, I think. I think there can still be some great speeches that do not follow this structure. Yeah. yeah. But I think if you're bringing in all of the elements that even Aristotle said we needed, Pathos, logos, you need to have all of that in there. Right. I guess the ethos comes more from the, the speaker. But you've got to have the emotional hook and you've got to have the logic and then you've got to make some people do something about it at the end. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I mean, I've analyzed 
I don't know, probably like a hundred speeches in, in, in my life. And it seems uh, like it seems like that usually is the structure most people tend to do, even if it's in a different variation. They have to have some logical piece of evidence that is justifying the nature of their claim. And then they have to have some emotional claim that gets people hooked. And then they go through it on and on and on. I think it's the hardest when you have like STEM people, so science, technology, engineering, math people trying to communicate the the crucial aspects the integral aspects of the data that they found over a decade uh to the masses i think that's where a lot of this stuff gets lost in translation and that's where the pathos and ethos stuff is very very important because they have the logo stuff but the question is how can we get that logos to be communicated to regular people right yeah i find uh, people working in those industries they're often the ones who will come to people like me most yeah because they're having difficulty they come up with this in genius idea and no one's going to listen to it. Right. It's often a problem for also like groundbreaking bits of science. Um, there was research that showed that doctor that there was a lower rate of deaths during labor when a doctor immediately washed their hands after performing a cesarean or immediately before performing a cesarean. Right. That research well documented for 30 years before it became common practice. Or there was the story about how the guy proved that ulcers were formed by bacteria. Mm. Do you know that story? I haven't heard of it, no, but I imagine. Well, these doctors, well-respected doctors, came up with a, a thesis which went completely against the scientific world. Right. They said that ulcers are caused by bacteria. And they well-documented, they could prove it, they could show all of this, and no one believed them. So they had to make people listen somehow. And one of the doctors, they were Australian, I've forgotten their names, he created a sort of shake with this bacteria, drank the shake to give himself ulcers, just to prove that that was what did it, and then found a way that he could cure that as well. And until someone had that immediate story, saying, this is what I've done to myself, and look, it's here, then people weren't interested. Yeah, and it seems like storytelling has been fundamental as in terms of one thing, if we, or if we had to isolate a list of ten things. It's, that's one of the ten that has been a constant throughout human history, right? Like, mm -hmm. ever since we were just coming up and figuring out how to colonize this earth, we had to tell each other stories in some language, in some communicative strategy that would allow us to get things done over the course of time. And, I mean, even th for things like data, if we can't effectively storytell things like ulcers are creating bacteria, it's going to be hard for people to buy into it. Even if the data is true. I mean, even with climate change right now, like I think one of the gaps in the climate change industry is the, da the data is there. We obviously know it's happening, but the, the effective storytelling is lacking. It's just, it's just a bunch of clickbait articles that are saying we're going to die. It's not real stories that are actually communicating what we can do to solve this problem. You know? Yeah. I think there's also a problem with scale. Yeah. When you're dealing with anything that's really, really big or really, really small, usually that problem is really, really big. How do you make people hang on to that? How do you make people grasp that kind of number? Because it just feels abstract, doesn't it? Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, if we... uh, go ahead. I was just thinking, like, this is something I found instinctively by trial and error when I was working as a, as a tour guide. I'd have to talk about, in Germany, you have some very, very difficult history, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. And you talk about the murder of six million Jews, 
very, very hard for people to latch onto that. Yeah. So what some museums have done, which I think is really innovative and also powerful, is rather than just give you facts, they'll tell you a few individual stories. They'll say, and once you know that person's name, once you know what happened to them, then you feel much more of a connection with the with the history. Uh, there's also a new thing on Instagram called at eva.stories. Mm-hmm. It's a little girl, Hungarian girl who died in the Holocaust, telling the story, her story through Instagram stories. It was done by the Israeli government, which is very, very interesting. But it's the same thing big numbers reduced down to a simple story which you can then actually understand yeah yeah it's especially communicating you know horrible acts of history i mean it's, it's hard to give people the stats and for like you say six million and i think people sympathize but you know at the end of the day it's like okay well what what does that really mean and once you really put a face on, on on a couple of those six million because six million again just like climate change it's very abstract it's very just out there it's just a number once we understand the the crux of how that number actually uh, is interpolated, then we can imagine, okay, this horrible thing happened to this person six million times. Now it's like, wow, this is a real thing, you know? And in climate change, sometimes the problem, like you're you're indicating, the authorities will say, oh, if the temperature rises half a degree, you think a half degree, I don't notice half a degree. Right. level rises two centimeters well that's not very much like how is that a problem (laughs) and of course it's a massive problem and they need to successfully construct this leads to this leads to this leads to this which leads to you being affected in this way right right it has to matter to the people you're telling if it doesn't then they're going to believe another narrative yeah I think, and I think that's where communicators and think tanks really come in and they have to hire the right people on how to communicate that stuff. But yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of uh, speaking on the stage, do you have a specific style or preference for hand movement, eye contact, body movement? Is there a, a sort of formula in your head for what a speaker should do with their body on the stage? I think that the most easy and powerful thing anyone can cultivate when they're learning to speak is good posture on stage. You need to start with your feet slightly wider apart than normal to prevent any swaying. Right. Then you have to lift your sternum. I say is I get people to put their finger at the bottom of their neck, lift it up slightly so they're lifting their sternum and then make sure that the neck is an extension of the back. So then you've got a very, very solid basis. Right. And with your hands, they need to be hanging down by your side as a neutral position. The problem is a lot of people come with the, the Terminus Rex or the Angela Merkel, and this comes from evolution. Yeah, yeah. Like if I, if you see a baby, they often do this the whole time. They're protecting their vital organs. Right. And whenever you're unsure, people will close themselves in. So you need to find a position and having your arms down by your sides is the easiest way to have an open body language. And then from there, you can gesture. Right. Right. But yeah, gesturing and finding nitty gritty technical ways of doing things are, I would say, they're not really essential to learn at the very beginning. Yeah. But 
there are things that I am trying to, to cultivate myself. I'm trying to do better myself as well. My thing I'm trying to do at the moment is I'm trying to remember to always gesture a mirror image to like beginning to end. Right, right. It's driving me crazy. And I can feel myself doing it the wrong way the whole time. I'm like, oh, God, I did it the wrong way that time. And I'm trying to make myself naturally gesture from the perspective of the audience to make it a little bit clearer for them. What, what do you mean by a mirror image? So this is my right, but it's your left. Right. So I'm, if I say left and right, then I'm doing a mirror image of what I would normally do for myself. Same thing you need to consider when, with how you stand on the stage. People often say you have three points on the stage that you have to stand on, you know, left, uh, left, middle, right. Right. And if you're t telling a story, sometimes people like to distribute that throughout the stage. You need to consider, oh, this is the beginning for the audience. It might feel like the end for you. It's the beginning for them. Right. So it's about working out how are they seeing the stage, not how am I interpreting. Again, it's about being audience-centric, what I'm saying. What are your thoughts on pacing on the stage? Uh, I saw a LinkedIn post the other day where someone was like, uh, public speakers who pace around are obnoxious <laughs> because they're just constantly walking back and forth. To me, I love walking back and forth, and I, I think I've been doing it from a very young age when I started speaking. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a strategy on how you control the stage through pacing? You need to pace a bit, because if you just stay in one spot, then it's going to get kind of boring, I don't want to be boring but yeah, it's boring. People need to move around a little bit, and it's likely that your audience will be big enough that you need to speak to all of them, and, you need, and they need to feel your proximity as well. Right. I think what that LinkedIn post might have meant is any sort of pointless pacing right. can be distracting. I was watching, have you seen this year's Toastmasters winner, Aaron Beverly? Yeah, actually, I have him on the podcast uh, next uh, this really? Sunday. Yeah, he'll be on. He's after me. Oh, yeah. man. And that <laughs> was after him. <laughs> but amazing speech. And I was really surprised how much he moved around right. during that. Usually, Toastmasters is all very three points on the stage, deliver each point at this particular area. And he was much more free with it. Right. And perhaps that fluidity gave a certain element to the speech that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely. So I don't think we can ever say that any one thing is wrong, but I do think pointless movement that's excessive can perhaps just detract from the, from the message. Yeah, I mean, I was watching a class presentation in college once, and there was this one kid who was, who was uh, giving his presentation. It was like a five-minute story, and in those five minutes, he probably traveled the entire Atlantic the way he was pacing. I mean, he was back and forth, back and forth. At one point, the teacher had to be like, yo, like, relax, like, you can chill. Um, I think body movement, particularly in gestures on the stage, they're, they're a byproduct of a speaker's persona. And a speaker's persona is developed through the content of what they're saying, which is why I think content is always more important. But that content, once it is what you want it to be, will influence the way you interact with an audience and that will influence your gestures. I think it's kind of hard sometimes to necessarily coach exactly what the gesture should be. Yeah. And I, I, to be honest, when you're coaching, mainly you're coaching content. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't really practice public speaking without a public. Yeah. And unless you're doing 
something which by its nature has a lot of people who can watch the person speaking, it's very difficult for them to practice the performance. You can give them tips and so on, but the majority of your time will be spent developing the, the content of that. And the people you're coaching are generally not professional speakers. They are people who have done other wonderful things and need to be able to communicate that. Right. So you can't get too nitty gritty and shouldn't overload people with all this new stuff. Right. They're trying to remember what they've got to say and then also they've got to do all of these different things. It's going to be hard, I think, for that. Right. I have another uh, question for you. Do you think that schools, elementary, middle, high school, uh, as much as they make mandatory algebra and, and English, mm -hmm. do you think they should make mandatory, not public speaking, but some level of communication skills? Because every, school's whole selling point is like, we're going to prepare you for the job market. The job yeah. market, at least every job I've seen, the first thing before their technical qualifications is like excellent communication skills. Do you think yeah. schools need to put a little bit more emphasis on communication? And the, and the fact that they're not doing it is what gets people to get a degree and not even know how to use that degree? Well, obviously, I'm a bit biased as a public speaking coach that, of course, I feel that Last everyone question. should public speaking more. <laughs> um, I, there's been a lot of debates about how the current schooling system is kind of outdated right. for the way the market works nowadays and the way that jobs work nowadays. And I do think that moving towards skills like communication will be very important. I think it's happening anyway, um, certainly more than when I was at school. Right. I feel that people are able to learn coding and new skills which are gonna be very important for the market. And communication, it would be a very important one. Warren Buffett's that famous quote, I'm sure everyone, every public speaking coach, uh, coach has quoted this, when he said that it would make you 50% more valuable if you could have good communication and public speaking skills. Yeah. So for sure, people should be learning this. Not just to communicate, but for me, I found being able to crystallize my ideas and talk to people really helped me get a lot of my thinking straight as well. Right. It made the world much clearer to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I think what Buffett really meant by that, he gave that quote in 2009, and I think I think the thesis of his of, of that message was just like, people who change the world, people who do something super successful, people who are worth $50,000 more, are the ones who can effectively convince other people to buy into a theme, a message, an idea, a story, something. And that's not just entrepreneurial, but that's when you're in the boardroom and you're a consultant and you have to close this account for your company. Like that's when speaking matters and, and that is yeah. public speaking um and to me i, I think that's I, that's that's super vital and that's super important I, I think that the the main issue with schools is that you know they they a lot of the stuff they're just teaching i don't want to say it's unnecessary i just think like it's it's fundamentally people forget about it and i did speech and debate in high school and the only thing i remember from high school was the two years that i did speech and debate because it transformed the entire way i understand communication the world persuasion everything if i needed an extra day on an assignment from my from from my teacher i knew how to go talk to that teacher and get the extra day right and i think so many people in my class didn't know how to do that right and and it and that skill transferred in a lot of other parts of life um yeah yeah it's a it's a, a that, that that sounds awesome i wish i'd done it to be honest i think there was speaking debating but i didn't do it i was more in yeah, and a lot of people, they think it's, it's a nerdy thing, and I thought it was nerdy as well, but, like, then you start going into it, you start going to tournaments, I started yeah, winning yeah. tournaments, and, you know. It's, it's, it's really cool. I did, actually, I had to give a couple of speeches at, at school, 
And that concentrated effort to make it happen, because unlike with homework, you can't just go and say, hey, can I have a couple of days extra? You've got a deadline to, to do. Right. You have to get it done. You have to stand up. You have to speak. And I'm sure I was absolutely terrible, but I did find it a very rewarding thing to, to have done. Yeah. It's important. It's important. Um, all right. So last two questions, and then I'm going to get out of your hair. Uh, la second to last question is, what is the future for you in the speaking industry and your business? Do you want it to become some big global company where you're consulting clients around the world? Are you happy saying local in Germany? Are you trying to go give keynotes to a lot of companies? Where do you see yourself in the next five, 10 years? Uh, I probably see myself more trying to break into the UK markets. Gotcha. Of course, the US market is fantastic because of Silicon Valley and all these amazing companies coming out of actually all over the US. The US is just so big, but yeah. it's a pain to get all the right visas to go and work in the US. Especially with some leadership that we have right now. <laughs> yeah. But I see myself, of course, it would be fantastic to create something which is really, really big, find a new way of explaining public speaking to a much wider audience. Right. But then I consider myself at the moment a, a freelancer. Right. My aim is to get more clients and to help more people in that way. Um, giving keynotes on the topic of communication is also something which is fantastic and I find it extremely exciting in a way I can get my idea a little bit further. And a big part of, I think, putting all of these things forward will be to come up with my own ways of explaining different topics and areas of communication. Right, right. Then, and in the near future, a group of coaches and I have a, a book coming out about the mindset of public speaking. That's awesome. That's about awesome. how one can develop the right mindset, the right way about approaching getting better as a public speaker. The different things you need to keep doing throughout your life to to make that happen. Right. So and I'm very motivated to try and find other things. If I can find a new way to explain to people, this is how you structure a story. This is how you structure a speech. This is how you get over feeling nervous on stage. Finding a new way to explain these things or make them even better, perhaps. That would be the dream. Now, I said that was second to last, but but you, what you said just triggered something. So this is second to last. Okay. Um, the the whole the what you've told me is basically you're you're spending a, like a majority of your time figuring out new techniques and communicative strategies and elements to get people to feel more comfortable speaking and investing in structuring the speeches things like that. Is I'm assuming this isn't purely just for money. I feel like there is a larger motivation that's underlying what you're doing and. What is that motivation in terms of public speaking? Do you just want to see more people have the confidence to speak? Does that give you some personal satisfaction that you were able to get them yeah. to that point? I also want to listen to better speeches. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing worse than sitting through this long uh, uh, presentation. And also, I imagine for you as well, when you've taken the time to learn a bit about public speaking and then someone fires up PowerPoint and has like, this long essay and think, oh, mate, why are you doing this? Um, yeah. I want... Partly, it's a, a selfish endeavor to not be bored whilst watching speeches, but also I do feel that in this day and age, as we've mentioned, the job market is changing. Right. It doesn't matter how good you are, it matters how original you are. Right. It matters what you've got to say. Absolutely. And, I, and everyone has something to say. Everyone has a unique perspective on the world. 
And if I can empower people to feel confident enough to stand up and speak up and give their opinion on stage or even in their board meeting, some people find that really, really hard, then that is a worthy endeavor. That's a beautiful thing to do, man, because everyone, as you said, has a unique story to tell. And almost 99% of people don't have the courage to tell that story. And like being one of the few people on this planet that can make an impact on, let's say, you know, we don't have to get into numbers, but just impacting that one person that heard your keynote, that heard your lecture, that heard your workshop, that was like, I'm going to stand up and give my, I mean, to me, coming from another trainer's perspective, that shit is unbelievably fulfilling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. This is a question I ask everyone who's on this podcast. You can answer it however you want. Are you happy right now in life? A year ago, I married the woman of my dreams. Two months ago, we had a baby. I'm doing a job which I love, living in a city which the weather could be better, but otherwise quite cool. <laughs> Life's good, man. <laughs> Life's good, man. That's awesome. That's that's how we'll end it. All right. That is Rob Willis from Berlin, Germany. Uh, Rob, let everybody know where they can find you, and then we will head out. Check out my website, robdwillis.com. All right. Thank you all for watching another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode.